0: Good afternoon, welcome to today's online CME event. There is no commercial support for today's activity. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. To claim your CME CE credits today, please answer the survey evaluation and print off your certificate. You can find the survey link on the last slide of the presentation and in the information section of the video. Also, if you have a question for the presenters, please type it in the chat bubble at any time during the presentation, and we will answer the questions at the end. It is my pleasure to introduce our speakers this afternoon. We have Dr. Claudia Grossum, and she is a pathologist at Northeast Georgia Medical Center and serves as the medical director of the blood bank. She graduated from University of Medicine and Pharmacy in Romania and completed her residency at University of Florida. She did her first fellowship in surgical pathology at Emory University and her second fellowship in uh, genitalia pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. We also have Dr. Joseph Conway, who is a pathologist at Northeast Georgia Health System and director of the laboratory at the Gainesville campus. He graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina and completed residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Conway did a fellowship in surgical oncologic pathology at UT MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and his second fellowship in hematopathology at the Methodist Hospital in Houston. He has been with Northeast Georgia since 1997. Join me in welcoming our presenters today. Hey,
1: good afternoon. I am Claudia Gerasim. I am a staff pathologist here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center, and I'm also um, the blood bank director. What I will present today is the COVID-19 laboratory perspective, and I'm going to talk about convalescent plasma. And first, I'll take um, just a second before I get started to thank the blood bank uh, team, and especially Lisa Shirley for um, the monumental work that they put, and extra work that they put to make this transition um, from the beginning of March and April to convalescent plasma uh, treatment possible. So let's get started. What I'm gonna talk about today. uh, I'm gonna define convalescent plasma. So in other words, what is convalescent plasma? I'm gonna review the Mayo Clinic clinical trial and the FDA EUA, Emergency Utilization Authorization for COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma. And we're gonna discuss our blood bank experience with COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma. So let's get started. What is Convalescent Plasma? Convalescent Plasma is not a new concept. It's around for uh, more than 100 years. Uh, It has been proven in the past for other uh, pandemic to be an efficient way of treatment uh, when a therapy of particular interest uh, when a vaccine is not available, um, pl- this kind of plasma is collected from people um, who have recovered from a disease and is presumed to have antibody for that particular disease. Um, what does it? What does it do? It results in a passive transfer of antibody. <clears throat> uh, what kind of instances has pl- uh, convalescent plasma be, been used in the past? It was used in. Um, during Spanish influenza pandemic, Ebola, West Nile, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, these are just a few examples, including H1N1. Uh, What is passive antibody therapy? Passive antibody therapy um, has the active agent um, antibody against a target pathogen of interest. Um, Normally, in times, non-pandemic times, it relies primarily on pooled immunoglobulin prepared that contain high concentration of antibody. However, in situations like COVID-19 pandemia, uh, pandemic situation, in contrast, plasma is used in epidemics where there is insufficient time or uh, resources to generate immunoglobulin preparation. How is plasma collected? There are different ways of collecting plasma We're talking about collecting plasma in general. Uh, Plasma can be collected through a whole blood donation, and then the plasma and and the whole blood is being taken to the blood centers, centrifuged down, and filtered and separated in um, components. One being plasma, other red blood cells, platelets, or which is the ideal way of doing um, collect. Plasma is collecting a technique is called aphoresis, is the recommended procedure to obtain plasma. Why? Why is this the, the, the recommended procedure? Is because you can collect a significant amount um, between 400 and 800 uh, milliliters of single apheresis donation. And this donation can be separated and in, in stored in units of 200, 250 mLs. It needs to be; It's frozen within 24 hours or frozen within eight hours. Depends on the, uh, what type of plasma it is. And it can be stored up to one year um, at minus 25 degrees Celsius. Once this plasma is thawed, it can be stored in the refrigerator for up to five days. So in other, word, un, other words, um, a year is a significant time where you can actually store and use uh, convalescent plasma. <coughs> Who is eligible to donate convalescent plasma? First of all, the donors have to m- to meet the requirements for any kind of uh, blood donation. In other words, each state is different, but um, there are requirements such as um, age, uh, weight, blood pressure, um, travel history. Um, but in the case of convalescent plasma, the requirements are the patient has to have um, a COVID-19 positive test uh, result as well as symptoms or uh, no symptoms but two uh, separate uh, antibody positive tests for COVID-19. The potential donor has to um, um, have complete resolution of symptoms 14 days before donation and um, there are a few other requirements such as uh, because this is plasma and um, plasma contains an antibody, we have to be careful, Uh, we accept male donors or females that were never pregnant or female donors that were pregnant, however, have a proven HLA uh, antibody negative testing. So these are the potential donors for convalescent plasma. Uh, Here is just a little schematic of um, an apheresis instrument. So in other words, the, the blood, Is being introduced into the instrument, is being centrifuged down and separated in three three components plasma, which is 55% of total blood, the buffy coat, we call this the buffy coat, which contains the leukocytes and platelets, and erythrocytes. In this case, the erythrocytes and buffy coat will be introduced back into the patient, and the only component that is being uh, saved is plasma. Um, This will allow, first of all, these patients, there are recuperating their, their healing from COVID, uh, many of them have anemia. So in other words, we're trying to avoid um, collecting comp- components that will, uh, will put the, that potential donor in, in danger. What are the mechanisms of action of convalescent plasma? Um, there are a variety of mechanisms. One of them Uh, antibody binds to a given pathogen, in this case the virus, and neutralizing its uh, infectivity directly. Or there are the antibody-mediated pathways. I'm not going to go into this because it's complicated, and really we don't have time for talking about complement activation, antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. Um, This is a little schematic of how the antibody, um, the convalescent plasma, works. We're going to skip and continue um, to data on the use of um, convalescent plasma therapy in COVID-19 um, uh, therapy, so the data is increasing. If, if in the beginning of March and April we had limited data coming from China, Netherlands, uh, South Korea, um, even United States, um, some of those that data um, it, w- it was part of clinical trials, randomized clinical trials that were not never completed, like like for example uh, the one in China. Um, was never completed, however, uh, the conclusions were drawn even if even if the study were not completed. There, there were conclusions that convalescent plasma is safe and um, uh, there are benefits of using it. The benefits are ranging from improvement in laboratory and respiratory parameters without changing overall status or improvement, improvement of viral clearance and status. Um, in all these studies, patients treated with convalescent plasma also receive other treatments, including retro- retroviral medications. So in other words, um, this is provisional d- data. Uh, however, all this data and the fact that we know historically that convalescent plasma worked in the past um, led to FDA. In March 24, 2020, FDA published its guidance document for investigational COVID-19 convalescent plasma. Uh, and the doc- that document outlines three pathways for access of convalescent plasma. One, the first one, individual single patient emergency use investigation new drug, IND, uh, which is in a way a complicated uh, way of um, getting convalescent plasma because it involves a form that needs to be completed. Our patients are, are critical, so in other words, it takes hours, days uh, just to complete the forms. Or another way is clinical trials, or the third way, and the way that we here at the uh, Northeast Georgia Medical Center utilized uh, convalescent plasma under the Expanded Access Program, EAP. Um, it's a master treatment protocol, it's government-led, and um, it's a non-randomized study design. In other words, there is no control of patients that did not receive convalescent plasma. So that, that's one of the limitations. Um, so Patients eligible to receive convalescent plasma under this protocol, they must uh, must have a laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 uh, uh, test, um, and they must have severe or immediately life threatening COVID-19, and these are the parameters that we used in order to qualify these patients for, for enrolling into, into this plan. Um, so again, uh, AP under Mayo Clinic, it, it was under Mayo Clinic IRB, and it was FDA-initiated, uh, multi-center, open-label uh, EAP, in hospitalized adults who had severe COVID-19. Um, the Mayo Clinic IRB served as a, as a central IRB. Um, this clinical trial, which enrolled between, between March and at the end of August, uh, enrolled more than 100,000 patients, um, led to at least two published studies and. Uh, more on the way in press right now. There was the first safety update um, that inv- um, was talking about 5,000 hospitalized patients as well as the safety update COVID-19, covers and Plasma in 20,000 hospitalized patients. Uh, they're talking about patients enrolled between April 3rd and June 2nd, 2020. Um, and they're talking, the role of this study, the, the role of uh, how the study was designed, they wanted to see that if this treatment is safe. They did not exactly, they did not look um, um, if this treatment is efficient. In the beginning they just talked about is it safe to give it to our patients. So the incidence of all serious adverse events was low, 141 serious adverse events they were classified as transfusion reaction in less than 1% of the transfusions. What are the transfusion reactions, the the severe transfusion reactions? We're talking about TRALI, which is the most severe, and actually TRALI is a diagnosis of exclusion. It's pretty much, it's difficult to diagnose TRALI in a patient that already has pneumonia. So in other words, TRALI refers to transfusion-related acute lung injury. Uh, so it's difficult to actually diagnose trolley in a patient that already has pneumonia. Uh, TACO, uh, a transfusion associated circulatory overload, um, allergic reactions, or anaphylactic reactions. However, this study concluded that convalescent plasma is safe, and they also concluded that the seven-day mortality rate in this extremely high-risk cohort was 13%, which is, which is low in this cohort. Um, So, as a reminder, this study was not designed to evaluate uh, 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 how efficient convalescent plasma is. And they're they're also admitting their study limitations like seven-day mortality rate has decreased over the weeks, but why did they decrease over the the, the, the weeks? Is it because the um, transfused patients, we started transfusing patients, they were less uh, critical? Um, There was another, explanation, another potential explanation why the patient started doing better, uh, is it because the, the, healthcare, the, the healthcare community improvement improved in man- managing these patients, or is it because, it, like in our case, is it because the blood bank availability of convalescent plasma uh, increased? We actually saw that in our own blood bank. If in the beginning in April, March, it was extremely difficult to get units of convalescent plasma and the reason why I, th- I think um, uh, our blood bank supervisor in the beginning, Dr. Uh, Lisa Shirley, the superv- blood bank supervisor, is because she proactively, we were looking for solutions where we can find convalescent plasma because Red Cross in Atlanta didn't have uh, a lot of units for us. So uh, if you remember, back then um, the, the hot spot was in New York City, so uh, we made connection with New York City um, blood community, blood bank community, and we received uh, units from over there. So these were the limitations. Um, however, during this time, we, they, they noticed convalescent plasma is safe, and not only that, but there, there is reason to believe that it's actually efficient. So that led to another FDA-issued um, FDA emergency use authorization on August 23rd of convalescent plasma which allows units that are labeled as high titer convalescent plasma to be distributed and transfused when ordered by licensed healthcare providers, physicians. Uh, And defines strict testing guidelines and titer cutoff uh, levels for CCP. It also uh, permits 90-day transition period to allow the collection, distribution, and transfusion of investigational units that do not meet the uh, EUA requirements. So let's go to our experience. I touched a little bit on what happened in March, April, uh, but let's start from the beginning. So the first unit that was transfused was in April 16 at Brasselton Hospital. Uh, Back then, access to COVID-19 convalescent plasma was provided through the Extended Access Program that I just talked about from Mayo Clinic, and this program was supported by the US government. Um, Between April, I can can, uh, divide um, the time our experience with convalescent plasma in this hospital into in two categories between April and June, when when the limited we had limited supplies of convalescent plasma available. Um, why did we have that limited supply? Because there were few recovered COVID COVID nineteen patients eligible to donate in our area. Um, so suppliers uh, had to develop. And not not only that, but the Red Cross, which is our main. Um, blood supply, they had to develop a new process that complied with FDA requirements for the collecting and labeling of convalescent plasma Um, and as I mentioned to ensure availability of product uh, NGMC established a new relationship with New York Blood Center Um, the estimated time for us back then between April and June um, the turnaround time from the from the receipt from the order until until we actually got the units were, was between four to ten days, depending of course depending on the blood type. It was very difficult for us to to obtain A B plasma. A B A B blood type is four percent of the entire population. Imagine out of patients that that uh, recover four percent of that is really limited. So A B plasma is very valuable. It was even more valuable in, during this times. So between this time, 69 units were transfused to approximately 50 patients in between April and June. However, between July and September, the quantities, the, the units, uh, the av- availability of CCP improved. The Red, Bro- Red Cross, uh, American Red Cross, and other suppliers increased production of convalescent plasma ac- across the country. And Brasselton and Gainesville Hospital, both hospitals, they were able uh, to keep a small inventory of product on site. Like I said, uh, this, is a froze, this is a frozen product, so it can be kept until up to one year. So it's not that we cannot keep it, it's just that we need to, to get it from our blood suppliers. And we were because we had a lot of supply um, and inventory, we were able to fill most products' orders within a few hours, depending on blood type again. so. Uh, 684 units were transfused to approximately 190 patients between July and September. And this is just a little graph to show you how everything started in April, and the the month that we transfused most units was in August, um, and this is September. So as a conclusion, convalescent plasma is safe. It's as safe as any plasma product, Um, and there are reasons to believe that actually uh, it's efficient in treating COVID-19. These are my references, um, and questions probably are gonna be at the end. Thank you very much. And I'm gonna let um, my colleague and our medical director, Dr. Joseph uh, Conway, uh, take over.
2: Thank you uh, Dr. Gerasim for that uh, overview of a critical component of our response to Um, COVID-19. I think that's a good introduction uh, for what I'm going to talk about and you know uh, in preparing for this talk I listened to uh, some other speakers and one of them said there's over uh, 5 million publications on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 since the beginning of the year so it's really it's overwhelming the amount of information it seems like things do indeed change daily so this is a talk that's just from my perspective I don't know that it's got the best or the latest data but I think I think my main point will be relevant uh, regardless um, let's see objectives I just want to discuss the state of testing it Northeast Georgia, uh, discuss some of the different testing modalities and their roles, uh, discuss testing uh, in a diagnostic setting versus a clinic versus a screening setting because uh, they can have uh, very different implications and then talk a little bit about sample type and collection. So uh, I actually was getting dressed this morning and I have a SARS tie from the first SARS epidemic. And it says it's, uh, the image is licensed by the CDC. So this is not the first time that we've had something like this, but I think it's probably the first time that we as a country have been uh, impacted to this extent. And you can see this uh, graphic from a review article talking about the virus and the SARS, a severe acute respiratory syndrome, COVID 2 virus, is 90% similar to coronaviruses that they see in bats. And so they think it probably did come from a vet, bat. And the question is uh, was there an amplifying host between the bats and the humans? And for the first SARS, there was a civet cat, there was. And for MERS, the Middle Eastern uh, virus, there was the camel. so that's still something that's under investigation, but we know because it's of relatively low pathogenicity and easily spread that it has led to the pandemic. Whereas the first stars had uh, higher pathogenicity, or it made people sicker, it killed more people, and be uh, paradoxically, because of that, it was easier to find sick people and isolate them. So. What is the state of testing here at Northeast Georgia? Well, it's very similar to pretty much every place across the country and uh, I'm going to try to play this video of uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, our current president of the Pathology Association. This is taken 10 days ago. There's no sound, which is fine. So basically uh, The president of the Pathology Association was asking Dr. Fauci, what's up with all the uh, shortages of testing for PCR and nucleic acid testing? And Dr. Fauci said, well, uh, it was news to him because the manufacturers of this testing are telling people at the highest level that there are no issues. So there's uh, a disconnect there. And it's disturbing that it's still there after six months of the pandemic going on. And, uh, Dr. Godby, who's the president of the pathology association says, "We well, you know, I'm on the front lines and it really is an issue for us across the country. And so it's been an issue for us. We, we need more testing, better testing, quicker testing, but we're no different than most of the other uh, places across the country that are involved with this. So, you know, initially the EUA, or Emergency Youth Authorization, that Dr. Grossom talked about for testing was just open to public health departments. And um, it quickly became apparent that they were uh, unable to meet the demand for testing, and so the FDA opened it up to commercial labs and academic labs and vendors and we started to get more assays on the market and so we were excited uh, when one of our big reference labs ARUP started to offer the testing uh, and then Mayo Clinic started to offer the testing but unfortunately uh, fairly quickly they both kind of blew up from overwhelming demand and stopped taking uh, specimens and so now's. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes to kind of shine some light of people that work in the lab that have been kind of key people and've worked very hard to get through this pandemic. And there are many people all throughout the organization who've really sacrificed and acted in a heroic way. But I worked with these people every day, so I, I saw them in action. And the first one is Joe Brewer. Who's our executive director and who is going to be retiring at the end of this year? And I think she wasn't really looking forward to retirement, but I, I think after this year that she is because it's been a rough year. But uh, anyway, we started to look for alternative labs. We looked all over the country. We were fortunate enough to find a lab in Alpharetta. And, um, you know, we weren't sure about them. We were calling up, we were having conference calls with all these labs and I have to say that the Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory, the DSL Labs, uh, we were impressed with what they had to say. They seemed sophisticated and they had an EUA and so we were desperate because all our resources for testing were drying up so we started sending them samples and Joe was instrumental in that and so many other things. And then this is our operations manager Mike Anderson who was responsible for Operationalizing the send out testing as well as getting all the uh, test kit supplies for testing. And we quickly we ran out of universal transport media, we ran out of viral transport media, we ran out of nasopharyngeal swabs, we ran out of tubes. I mean, every day it was something. And so Micah was, uh, you know tireless and trying to find supplies so we could do testing and um, I I won't go blow by blow but like we always knew like how many days supply did we have left who's burning through a lot of testing supplies how do we manage that Um, and just to give you an idea of where we're at we just got our order for universal transport media that we made in March in the last week or so. So they're six months behind. It was for 200 spec- specimens, which is nothing compared to our testing volume. Um, and then there's Sarah O, or Sarah o, or Stadius, who's our microbiology uh, supervisor who really um, was so key in the front lines of sending this testing out and uh, getting the, the testing data back and entering it in the system and calling providers with this data and I have to say none of this was perfect there were plenty of issues but it would have been worse without these individuals and the heroic efforts and I also like this picture because it has pictures of our BioFire and our Cepheid gene expert which are two uh, in-house uh, testing platforms for uh, SARS-CoV-2. And then finally I'd like to thank Melissa Frank and the pharmacy team who helped create test kits, actually kept us in the water testing, kept the the hospital functioning from a testing uh, standpoint, and uh, saved uh, the hospital hundreds of thousands of dollars by helping us make these test kits. Uh, And of course You know, was rough in the lab, but most of us didn't have to wear full PPE and you know risk our health and life with exposure. So, I I just want to say how much we appreciate our frontline healthcare workers in all uh, capacities. And so, you know, I as medical director, you know, I did my part as well. And uh, no, it doesn't look like we're going to get sound. What I tried to do, and uh, I, I don't know if it worked or not, but we, everybody seemed uh, to pull through to this point anyway. So, every talk I've seen has had a timeline. I won't belabor this one too much. We started for our send out molecular testing to the Georgia Department of Health. We went to ARUP, that blew up pretty quickly. We went to Mayo, that blew up pretty quickly. We went to the DSL lab in Alpharetta and um, we have a a cancer lab CSI also in Alpharetta and um, they had brought in this test for another client and they were like would you want us to do some testing for you we can do maybe 50 a day and it's evolved now they're our main send out testing platform and they can do a thousand a day and they they do no microbiology testing typically they're a cancer lab but they've just kind of stepped up and have been a great partner to help get through this. Uh, ARUP had opened back up to taking outside specimens and so now some of our outpatients send specimens to them and we have a in-town lab progenics it also helps us out so at the peak we're doing fifteen hundred tests a day hundreds of thousands of dollars a week in testing uh, and just a huge, I just can't give you an idea of the scope or the effort it took to coordinate all this and I just think Micah and Joe and Sarah deserve a lot of credit for that. Uh, In-house testing, we've got the Cepheid, the BioFire, and we're going to get a new instrument, the Roche instrument. Uh, It's on back order, I hope we get it soon, but it could be months. Uh, So Our cepheid gene expert, we've got lots of capacity. We could do 900 tests a day if we could get the reagents to do them. Unfortunately we've been allocated only 230 a week so we've had to allocate uh, this testing for emergent use and we run out almost every week. I think maybe there's one week where we did not run out. Um, There is going to be a change with this. Uh, Starting the first week of November Uh, they're going to go to quad 4 testing so we'll no longer offer just a SARS-CoV-2 assay Uh, we'll offer this quad 4 which has the SARS, an RSV, a flu A and a flu B and I know at the end of the last flu season uh, the data was saying there may be 20 to 30 percent co-infection and I was looking at this article in the Lancet and they found up to 75 percent of individuals with seasonal or pandemic flu were asymptomatic, so we could have, uh, given the asymptomatic spread and SARS, we could have a lot of people that have both and uh, I'm not sure how you would handle if they were positive for both, but that will probably be an issue. Here's our BioFire, uh, and we have two currently. We're getting four more for here and uh, two more for Razzleton. And Like I said, everybody in the country wants these testing platforms. We're on the waiting list. We should get it in a month or two. Um, Let's see. And here's the Roche. It's about the size of a small car. And uh, we've actually run out of space in our current laboratory, so we've had to metastasize to another part of the hospital. So I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I think Joe and Mike have found some place to put it. And it does 384 results in an 8-hour shift so it should be able to handle our in-house capacity economically and relatively quickly uh, once we get this up and running so it is a lab talk so I do have to talk about some technical things so the basis for the great majority of the testing we do is the reverse transcription polymerase change reaction or RT-PCR and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it's a simple virus, it's a single-stranded RNA virus and uh, with the PCR it can't amplify RNA so we have to uh, uh, make a DNA copy of the virus and then we can amplify it and so you can see up the top here's the, the, the viral genome and we do a primer to it and then we make a complementary DNA or like a mirror image of it and once we do that then we can amplify uh, uh, the nucleic acid material and have a very sensitive test and uh, I don't know if it's true or not but they say that that Einstein said that the most powerful force in the universe was compound interest and this is a similar principle here you can see two uh, copies and when you uh, do kind of this exponential copying of every subsequent copy, you can get over a billion copies in a relatively short uh, period of time, so it's a very sensitive technique which is good if you're using it for screening and uh, these copies uh, they label them with fluorescent materials, so they give off fluorescent light and they cycle, so the cycle by varying the temperature so they'll go one, two, three, four cycles and every cycle everything will double and so uh, if somebody has a high viral load uh, they'll have a go through about 18 cycles and so they'll have a cycle threshold ratio of 18 um, and you know they'll be positive they'll say well we detected the viral material there and after 40 cycles they're such a sensitive technique they just stop you know amplifying because they know at that point there's no viral material there and it's not infrequent I get emails and calls all the time hey what's the CT value for this patient Uh, because sometimes clinicians find that clinically informative um so um, CSI and progenics both use the CDC assay which many people use and they look for the N1 and the N2 uh, genes from the virus. There's also a control gene which is a human gene and so if nothing amplifies they know it probably wasn't a good sample in this uh, RNA uh, gene. Um, You know if it's there then it They know that when the the person that went in and swabbed the patient, they went in and they got a good sample and rubbed up against the nasopharynx. And if it's not there, then they know uh, it was not a good sample. So this this is busy, but this is a very important uh, graphic. And here you can see this blue line. I want you to pay attention to that. And that's PCR positivity. And uh, you can see that it goes up. And this uh, dotted line going uh, vertically uh, is when the patient becomes symptom. so from about a week uh, before they're symptomatic to six weeks after they're symptomatic you can detect viral particles in a subset of patients and but does this mean they're infectious? No, they've not been able to culture this virus after about eight days and so when we first came out, we'd have patients come into the hospital, and they'd be asymptomatic, and they'd say, "Well, we need to test them before we discharge them, and they'd come back positive. But are they really infectious? No, they're not. They're just detecting these uh, dead viral particles that can last for weeks." it was very problematic. I, I think we've gotten past that point uh, at, at this point, but beginning, it, it was we got a lot of calls about this. Uh, that's our, so, uh, this is a tremendous amount of overwhelming information and God bless these people at uh, Harvard, which is where Dr. Grossom trained, because uh, uh, they went and they aggregate all this data and we're always getting calls about hey why don't you get this test, I saw this test, and this is all about testing and so I frequently look at this and it shows all the different types of tests. There's PCR which is the most predominant but there's lots of other nucleic acid types of tests. There's serology tests, there's uh, viral protein or antigen tests. They list all the manufacturers and the assay time. It's very helpful uh, when you're trying to you know sift through all the information that's out there on testing and and they also do something that's very nice say uh, list all the manufacturer's data on the testing which is and isn't helpful Um, so you know this testing was released by emergency use authorization and um, so it was an emergency and they didn't do the normal clinical testing that they would do for a year or two before releasing the uh, assay and that the FDA would require them to so they just did lab validation so basically they take known samples and they'll dilute them down as much as possible to see what their lower limit of detection is and they'll report that out and uh, so it's kind of like having an open book test and grading it yourself I mean it's going to be good and if you look at this data it's generally all very good and um, you know but we would get calls we get one call of, you know I've got a patient they look like they have classic COVID they've got patchy infiltrates on their lung CT They have shortness of breath and they have a fever and they have exposure and your assays negative what's wrong with your assay and uh, I try to explain Well, it's, it's a good assay but it's never been clinically validated we really don't know clinically how it's going to perform even though it works great in the lab and then five minutes later you get another call and they say well my patient has been isolating in his basement for a month and uh, you know he has no exposures and he needed this procedure and your test says he's positive, what's up with your test? what's the sensitivity and specificity? and so it was a little frustrating I, I don't know that I was very conv- convincing to explain this, this this data and what it meant but there was a lot of confusion about this at the beginning and then this is very busy uh, slide but down here at the bottom is uh, data from the Cleveland Clinic we're comparing five of these tests and you see they're very good tests but they're none of them are perfect you know let's, let's look at the Cepheid which we have in-house the sens- sensitivity is 97.6 percent the specificity is 93 percent in a real-world setting so it's a good test but it's not perfect and you will have discrepancies um, and, you know everything was rushed and only recently have has the FDA released data where you could actually compare the limit of detection between different assays and here you can see uh, the Roche is 1800 and the BioFAR which we have is 5400 and the Cepheid is 5400 uh, the lower the number the better the level of detection uh, but all of these are very good in clinically uh, acceptable. So I'll I'll come back to molecular testing because it's our main um, mode of testing but I want to talk about antigen testing. Uh, We've been doing antigen testing a long time so we know a lot about it. It's inexpensive and quick. Uh, It's equally specific but it's less sensitive than the PCR tests. If you have a symptomatic patient evaluated by a medical provider and a positive test then they probably have the disease if you have a negative test in a symptomatic patient they need to follow up with a molecular test uh, and so this is a diagnostic test but there's tremendous pressure and information in the lay press and even some of the medical uh, literature about using these uh, diagnostic tests that are less uh, sensitive um, for screening and so when you do that the the performance uh, characteristics of the test change it's just not the same and here, here's a national example the governor of uh, Ohio who, who got tested with one, one of these quick tests and national news the governor of Ohio has COVID-19 and then three PCR test later well he really doesn't it's just how the test was used it was used inappropriately really Uh, but it's very hard to uh, kind of correct this misperception that we're under testing Uh, so antibody testing this should be short because it's not useful in the diagnostic setting of acute COVID-19 infection Uh, Some people that have COVID-19 don't make antibodies. Some people make antibodies, but they're not neutralizing antibodies. Some people have antibodies and they disappear. Uh, So it's really a a kind of a mixed bag. It's only useful for public health uh, surveillance. Typically, Uh, one of the few clinical uses I've seen for is for multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. Uh, many children will have asymptomatic infections, and so, you know, you may not know they had COVID-19, and then they get this weird illness, which is fortunately very rare. And you may want to do an antibody test to see if they've had exposure. But other than that, there's very limited, uh, if any, clinical uses for this testing. Let's see. And that's uh, Dr. Fauci basically just agreeing with me and everything I I just said. So (laughs) no no need to go over that. So as I was mentioning, diagnostic tests versus screening tests. Uh, Diagnostic tests are typically used to confirm a specific diagnosis. COVID tests were brought to diagnose disease and then used for screening. Uh, Screening tests are often used to rule out a diagnosis. And uh, if you want to rule something out, uh, you want a very sensitive test, snout, S-N-O-U-T, sensitive out. So so grab a test, any test, serology, less sensitive molecular test, most sensitive molecular test, antigen test. We just need more testing. Testing is the answer. Is that right? No, that's not right. Uh, so tester tools and it's all about using the right tool in the right patient care setting Uh, you wouldn't use a a hammer to put in a screw or a wrench to put in a nail so we need to use our testing tools correctly so I I thought this was appropriate for this time of year but this my worst nightmare and it may be your worst nightmare too I'm going to talk just a minute about statistics Uh, base theorem it's really just using the context of the patient to determine their pretest probability so if they're asymptomatic what's the prevalence of the disease you're looking for in the community Uh, if they're symptomatic then uh, what's the differential diagnosis and how likely would they be to have the the, have the disease based on their symptoms Um, so it's kind of common sense uh... what's your best guess based on the initial impression of the individual being assessed uh... sensitivity and specificity really don't tell you anything about how a test what a test result means for a specific patient you need to calculate a likelihood ratio based on that information and that gives you more significant uh... information and then Fagan's nomogram is uh, published in a letter in New England Journal of Medicine in 1975 and it's just a graphical way to tie together these pre-test probability, the likelihood ratio, and the post-test probability. And so likelihood ratios, uh, you know, I used data from Cleveland Clinic in our Cepheid assay. Typically for a positive likelihood ratio, anything greater than 10 implies strong significance Uh, for a negative likelihood ratio anything uh, less than 0.1 implies strong significance and you can see the Cepheid assay that we have in house both have a strong positive uh, likelihood ratio and negative likelihood ratio and just here's Fagan's normogram so we have a patient he comes into the ED he's got upper respiratory tract symptoms he's got a fever it's cold and flu season so you think well, we could have COVID or he could have the flu so your probability is 50 percent and you take that and you go through the like, positive likelihood ratio of 14 and he's got a greater than 90 percent chance that that's what he's got but what if you take a patient that's just getting screened for a pre-surgical uh, procedure and or you know our positivity rate for that population might be 1 in 200 so much lower so it's 0.05 percent and you go through the same 14 and then the probability of the patient actually having COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 with a positive test is 30 percent or 1 in 3 and so that's why when you start using these less uh, sensitive tests for screening you're going to get a lot of false positives just statistically um, so, so what is the best specimen to test? Well, nasal swabs are the, uh, are the gold standard. And uh, here from this data, which is from Wuhan, China, and there's plenty of other data, you can see they had the lowest uh, CT ratio or cycle, cycle threshold ratio. So that means they had the highest viral load from that specimen. That are easily accessible uh, relatively speaking like uh, broncho alveolar lavage they only got these on very sick patients they'd have to be intubated it's an aerosolizing procedure you certainly want to, wouldn't want to do that uh, routinely to, to uh, evaluate your patient uh, even though that pro- had had the highest uh, level of positive results so it's not applicable for routine use sputum, Uh, molecular biologists are not big fans of sputum because it's thick and messy, it's hard to extract the DNA, it's difficult to work with Um, and so that's a limitation for that, so really nasopharyngeal swabs are probably the best if you can get them but there's been a lot of information or uh, buzz about saliva, so what about saliva? What well, would be easier to collect, people don't like getting swabs, it's uncomfortable, we could use less PPE, less provider-patient interaction, and there's some data to say it might be superior. And is that true? Uh, Wiley at Yale has really been pushing this. It's been published in the New England Journal. Uh, they found it had greater sensitivity and that it was equivalent with nasopharyngeal swab sensitivity in both viral load that it could detect however they did things a little funky they only looked at patients with severe disease which would naturally have uh, a high viral load and they did first morning saliva collection which is not very practical to evaluate patients all day long and so we looked uh, at this study from Kojima and they got very good results from supervised saliva collection with a sensitivity of 90 percent, their pharyngeal swabs were 79 percent, and their unsupervised saliva collection was 66 percent. And they hypothesized because some patients failed to elicit a cough that that is why the unsupervised saliva um, had lower sensitivity. Um, and so what about our friends at Cleveland Clinic? Well, they did a more real-world evaluation. They did symptomatic patients when scheduled. They were, patients were coached, so they got enhanced saliva. You're supposed to do a hard sniff, elicit a cough, and complete with saliva. And they need three milliliters, which is just about half a teaspoon. And so they did 216 paired specimens. They had 38 dual positives. 100% positive predictive agreement. They had 177 out of 178 dual negatives or 99.4% negative predictive agreement and the one discrepancy actually went in favor of saliva and so their uh, you know, uh, conclusion was for symptomatic patients it was non-inferior to nasopharyngeal swabs and um, so does this have clinical applications well I can tell you that CSI which I have no financial relationship with is validating this assay and should have it available any day now and for patients that have had sinus surgery or deviated septum that are on anticoagulants and may bleed a lot with a nasal swab uh, for children or other patients that may have small nasal passages Uh, Because you've got to remember, we don't have a lot of the regular nasopharyngeal swabs available, so we're using these bigger swabs. Uh, This might be a good option to use. Um, They were uh, saying that the CT values for the saliva, though, were higher, which means low viral load, so it may not be good for screening. It's only good in a diagnostic setting. But I just saw this in the last week or so. This is from Johns Hopkins. It's not been peer reviewed or published. Uh, and basically, everybody that was saliva positive, they were able to culture. If they're saliva negative, they weren't able to culture. So even though it wasn't as sensitive as nasopharyngeal swabs, it may pick up everybody that's infectious. And we'll just have to see if the data bears that out or not. And, it, and if that was true, then it may have a role for screening so I get so upset uh, reading the news my wife she doesn't read or watch the news and I think she's better off for it but I I see things about testing all the time um, and they're always saying well it doesn't matter what test you use if it's not as sensitive you just need to do more of it and uh, I guess they, they may have a point but we know that these point-of-care tests are not as sensitive they're not optimized for doing uh, screening and we don't have the infrastructure in place if we had the public health infrastructure in place to follow all these people would be totally different but we don't we don't have it in place so you know kind of putting it out there and getting people riled up I don't think is very helpful because uh, then we get called in the lab why don't you have this testing uh, and so let's see, testing how gifts of devices to nursing home brings new problems Uh, they gave you know the government bought 150 million of these rapid tests but if you know we've got 300 million people in the country and um, you know you're testing them twice a week, well you run out of tests in a week (laughs) and they've had problems with false positives and negatives for the reasons I spoke about it's really been a a difficult situation I know a lot of the nursing homes have gone back to just doing the regular PCR test and then this is kind of somebody who's done it well this is uh, an article about the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard and they do the most tests of anybody in the country Um, they do the CDC assay just like CSI and progenics do They validated it for anterior nasal swabs which would make it more palatable and they test people twice a week basically these are college students and you can see they have excellent results here's their daily positives per hundred per thousand students and they have almost none whereas these other colleges that are testing less um, have a lot more cases so is testing the answer what it's really more than that. These places in the Northeast have very strict uh, protocols for uh, and mitigation factors um, and so uh, they're wearing masks, they're keep, keeping social distancing, they're washing their hands, and so it's really about using the testing in the right system. Uh, and so uh, I had questions what's the role of serology in diagnosing acute COVID-19 infection not none true or false does the nucleic acid amplification test with high specificity perform differently when it's used as a diagnostic test versus a screening test absolutely and uh, your friend says that she does not feel well and thinks she may have caught the coronavirus from her sister who's known to be positive your friend went to the doctor and had a rapid test that she said she was negative well the doctor or the provider should have said well you need to get tested with a molecular test if you don't want to do that you can quarantine then you need to quarantine until you're symptom free Um, because we know that uh, they can be PCR positive a long time and not be infectious Uh, so that that's basically my talk and I guess uh, there's an announcement at the end here
0: yes we actually have a couple of questions for you guys um, so the first question is, how long do antibodies remain in the system after recovering from COVID?
2: Wow, so that's a, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I think it depends. Um, from what I've heard and read, you know, we've got four common cold coronaviruses we get common colds like over and over again. So we'll get the antibodies to them for a year or two, then they'll dissipate and then we'll become susceptible to getting the infection again. So from what I've read and heard, um, they probably are not lifelong and it's likely that we'll get a flu vaccine and a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine or a COVID-19 vaccine every year uh that that's just my best guess based on the current data which it's always changing and coming in so it may change
1: okay
0: and we also have how often can a person give plasma
1: they can give plasma um actually every there's they can do it in every two days for a maximum of 13 uh, plasma donation per year The problem is, as Dr. Conway mentioned, as far as convalescent plasma, this is for plasma in general, and we follow the same same, um, guidelines. Uh, For how long do we have the antibody? That would be the the limiting factor. So ideally, it will be in the first few weeks after um, the patient is free of symptoms, but for how long? Uh, Now we have, since EUA, we have to test, actually, the the blood centers. Have to test um, the level of antibody that is present in those units in order to label them as high titer versus non high titer, uh, meaning low titer. So for now, we test them. So, starting at the end of November, when those 90 days um, grace period expires, the units that we're going to receive from our blood suppliers will be labeled as high titer or low titer. Um, so in other words, they can donate frequently for up to 13 times a year. Okay. Excellent.
0: And one more question. What is the cycle threshold when a patient is considered not infectious anymore even if the PCR is reported as positive? And are they any true quantitative assays that will be available in the near future?
2: So that's an excellent question. and I kind of skimmed over that in my talk but they say from the CDC that if the cycle threshold is greater than 33 that they've never been able to culture the virus and so you know that's what I've heard I I think we need to confirm that with other studies but 33 and then uh, it's up in uh, I think it's Mount Sinai up in New York City and who've had kind of like really world-famous virologists and serologists and they've done a complete suite of uh, testing from serology to like the qualitative PCR that gives you a yes no answer to quantitative PCR like they do for hepatitis or uh, HIV and they they have a quantitative assay but I haven't seen a lot of them available out there but I'm sure that, that there are some and probably will be more available in the future.
0: Okay, excellent. So on behalf of Dr. Manapoli, the lab has been so vital to our response to COVID and they have done a great job supporting all of us. She wanted to thank you so much for always staying a step ahead and for all that you guys do and being great collaborators. So we would like to thank you also from a CME perspective, and um, we hope everyone has a great rest of their day.